It's been a long day of driving for this 23-year-old looking for work. He's feeling desperate, so he pulls off the deserted road in Alaska, walks into an airplane hangar, and then begs for a job. He'll do anything. Clean toilets, scrub floors, whatever. Suddenly, a deep, gruff voice yells out of the shadows, Hey, asshole! Come in here! That night, a young kid with a New York accent and ill-fitted suit is reading the sports news live at the Anchorage ABC affiliate. Quite literally, within hours, a star is born. And Barry Kibrick, who now has a long-standing show on PBS, will always remember his highly unusual road to success. I knew I couldn't go back. Changes your you just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to just live. Even Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I could not. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Kogan. Every week, I talk to Mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. We must leave with a deeper understanding of our world and universe and a greater appreciation for our role in it. So every show has that in the back of my mind. No matter what it is, I must leave my viewers with that feeling. Barry Kibrick is the much-loved and respected host of the Emmy Award-winning PBS show Between the Lines, which has been on air for the past 22 years. Barry's guests have included some of the most respected authors, directors, musicians, scientists, philosophers, and business and political leaders from all over the globe. From Queen Noor of Jordan and Secretary of State Warren Christopher to James Elroy and Sir Ridley Scott, he's interviewed the world's greatest thinkers and players. What makes Barry's interviews so memorable and a favorite for many who have been on his show is his ability to notice the smallest and often overlooked details of their work, surprising even the most seasoned interviewees like Ron Howard. It was fun to sit down with this skillful interviewer who started his career in an Alaskan airplane hangar and put him in the hot seat for a change and see who was going to be interrogating who. Uh, Am I right in assuming that this is a, a first of sorts? For me, yes. To be on this side of the chair, so to speak, or the desk, or whatever you want, a microphone. Right. Yes, this is a first. So, are you? How, what are the rules we're playing by here? Do we Yours. Have, yeah. Oh, my rules. Oh, yeah. I'm, oh, the, really? I'm the guest. Your rules. You buddy. really think you're going to be able to hold yourself back? I mean, you're not going to just like kick into doing what you do so well. No, I didn't promise you that. All I said, I'm going to let you lead. Uh, I, I didn't say I'm not a good dancer, you uh, know. <laughs> no, but you've been dancing a long time in front of a camera. I mean, going what your first anchor job would be when you were 24 years old. Is that right? Right. Anchorage, Alaska. I was the anchor man in Anchorage. What market is Anchorage? 212, I believe. It's right down on the very bottom, maybe 201, something like that. Explain about this whole market thing, because people who get into television, who work in news, right, they want to be in the top markets. And the top markets being New York is number one, is that right? New York is one, LA is two, Chicago's three. Okay, and then it goes all the way down to about market number... 220, I think, 222, something like that. So you get a job in... Anchorage, Alaska. Right. 201, you said, or something, right? Yeah. Um, how does that come about? <laughs> I'll tell you, it's a, it's a great story. My dad was a mechanical contractor in New York City, and he was a vice president, and the company folded, 
and he was job searching and he was in his 50s at the time and at that time still age discrimination you weren't getting a job that easily in your 50s and a headhunter found him and said would you ever consider moving to Alaska and he said well I'll have to check with my wife my mother thought New Jersey was the sticks so Alaska was going to be a hard sell, but she went along with it. And at this time, I was out of college, and I spent a year trying to break in in New York. No one would even hear of it. He said, why don't you try something here? So I do a quick drive up the Seward Highway, went to the PBS station there. They said they only hired uh, kids from the school. I said, well, I'm not going to enroll in Anchorage University. On my way home, I see this massive sign that says K-I-M-O-T-V, the affiliate of ABC TV, and it's in this humongous airplane hangar. It was a converted airplane hangar, and I said, well, I've still got the suit on from the way I walked in, knocked on the door, simply asked, uh, secretary said, come in, or the whoever's at the door said, come in. Walk in, I go up to the front desk, and I say, listen, you know, I'm here, my name is Barry Kibrick, I will do anything, I will clean the bathrooms, I will scrub the floors, I will pull the cable, you name it, I'll do it. And from the back of the room, I hear, back of the studio there, I hear, hey, asshole, come in here. Asshole, come in asshole, here? Asshole, come in here. And I turn to the secretary and I say, I would never let someone talk to me that I worked with like that. Right. And she said, I assure you, he's not talking to me. I said, oh, well, I'm a very good asshole. I'll, <laughs> I'll hop in there. Make a long story short, this guy, as I used to joke, his name was John Valentine. Think of this. He made Clint Eastwood look like Woody Allen. He was the most macho, handsome man I've ever seen in my life. He says, are you ready to go on the air tonight? Do you know anything about sports? I said, well, yeah, you know, I was a football Hold player. I, I just was... want to backtrack here. You just walked in off the street. Off the street, I went on the air that night as the sportscaster. He thought my New York accent would make it seem like I was very erudite and uh, the people would think that they have a big broadcaster from New York. That's how I was introduced from New York City, Barry K. They didn't want me to use my real name. They, they gave me Barry, Barry K. K. Barry K from New York, and I went on the air that night. That is a crazy story. It is. You can't believe it. We have pictures of me on the air that night wearing my father's suit because I didn't have a suit. I was just <laughs> visiting him. I had no idea I would be looking for work or anything like that. Wait, now, did you just jump right into it? Were you nervous? Were no. You, no? Never nervous. So it was just a natural thing for you? It felt like this was what I was meant to do from day one. And the way, in fact, I didn't even have time to write copy. So all I did was take the Anchorage Times, cut out the articles, because I was first the sportscaster. Yeah. Cut out the articles, paste them on a paper. They didn't even have teleprompter at this time. All shot on six on 16 millimeter film and then transferred and uh, simply read parts of the paper. And with my <laughs> New York accent, uh, he said, where is Alabama? I've never heard of such Alabama? a- Yeah, I said, where is it? I said, it's in the South. He goes, no, it's Alabama that's in the South. He said, Keep it up, though. It'll work. And uh, that's how I got my start that Do you night. think it was the, it, the the accent was the closer for him? Or was it, it was there a combination of desperation to find somebody? Or, I mean, what was it about you? Know, you? I actually asked him. Yeah. And he said he could tell right away that I would be a good hand. 
And then once you, you go on the air, how long were you in Alaska? I was there for about 18 months. Okay. And then, of course, I figured, I, oh, I rose up the ranks. I went from sportscaster to a, a weatherman and sportscaster to anchorman. And new- is going from sportscaster to weather is that a promotion? No, I- it was it because I did both. Oh, you just did both. Oh, yeah, and then I became the newscaster and now as well. Now in sports, and, and now, now the in weather. weather exactly. Right, and then I did the break-ins in the morning at five o'clock for a. It was an ABC station, so you know how they do Good Morning America, and you yeah. break in at five. So I worked from five to midnight uh, every day, and it was literally the greatest experience I could ever. Recall, uh, it was just amazing. We were talking to someone who, uh, who's very experienced in television who was saying, it's not, it, you know, don't put too much importance on your first job. Like, just jump in, just, you know, go, go in with, with gusto and enthusiasm into whatever you're doing. But to hear a story of someone walking in off the street, walking into an on-air job, I mean, I don't know how many people have done that. I, I have not heard of it before. And by the way, because I was so cocky from doing it, I moved to LA literally afterwards. He said, why are you leaving? I'm gonna make you the station manager. You're gonna be in charge of everything. I said, you gotta be kidding. I'm ready for the big time already. Look at this, five years unemployed. I shouldn't say unemployed, odd jobs from installing sprinkler systems to being a truck driver for Gucci's, to being a security guard, to being a construction worker in shelves. (laughs) It was whatever I could do. That's humbling, isn't it? so humbling i had to go to therapy <laughs> it was that simple. Really? so yeah. that rejection i mean you hear so many people talking about coming to los angeles and dealing with the rejection when you walk into a number one market or a number two market you know you can be this big p in a in a small pod right then you come to this these big markets that's very difficult to handle right it, the ego it was because it's so personal so they're not rejecting it's sort of like you know they're rejecting you. Yeah. It's that simple. They're rejecting you. So yeah, it's, it was that personal. It, I must say I was blessed. I met my wife early on. So yeah. she was able to absorb a lot of that pain for me. And <laughs> she took it on herself, but she absorbed a lot of the pain for me. And uh, so I was never alone. You, you're known to be a curious person, uh, clearly confident. Has that been a big part of why you're so good at interviewing people, do you think? You I, just... I don't know if it's so the reason why I'm good at having conversations with people, but I definitely know that it plays a major role in how I live my life. Uh, I think that part actually came about just through the experience of doing it. And I found a little niche that I do so that, as, as you remember, as I said, I don't ask questions mm. in my interviews. I do it in a very different yeah, explain manner. Explain that because you, you think of an interviewer, they're asking questions. Right. But never. your approach is, how do you do that? What I do is I do as much research as possible, either on the person who's coming on. Most of the time I have either someone who's written a book, made a film. So I concentrate only on that topic. And what I do is, unlike people who like to say, well, I don't read it because I want to act like the audience, I say, that's sort of cheating. Mm. If I've read it and I know it, 
asking you a question I always felt would be sort of phony. Mm -hmm. So what I do is I take their words, your words when I read about you and what you did or watched all of your podcasts and watched your Explorer and watched your Amazing Race. I did the same thing. We should explain word. We should explain that I was a guest on your show. That's correct. Between the lines, right? Yes. And you, you get really deep into the subject matter of yeah. the person who's coming in. And then I give them the words that moved me the most. Mm. It's a very personal thing. So it's not just reading the material it, or watching the material or learning about the person. It's what about them mm. that moves me, that I want to share with my audience. The motto of my show is that, and everything I do from blogging to podcasting and whatnot, is that we must leave with a deeper understanding of our world and universe and a greater appreciation for our role in it. So every show has that in the back of my mind, no matter what it is, I must leave my viewers with that feeling. Between the lines now is 22 years, I believe. In the, we're in, by the way, you're one of the first guests of the 23rd season. Of the 23rd Third, season? 23rd season. Yeah, we're wow. into 23 now. So clearly it's something you love, you're, you're passionate about, you've been I successful with. I must be because I pay for it myself since we don't have any sponsors or any, well, we now have a, a small sponsor, but for 22 years, we self-funded the show. We're on uh, about 95% of the PBS stations in the country. Yeah, and um, was, yeah, that's a, a huge achievement because um, to keep things going as you have for that long and with the caliber of guests that you've got to sit down and to talk with is, it, Pretty extraordinary. I love this where you were talking to the Doors drummer, John Desmore, and you said about his music that it was hitting all the chakras, right? And 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 he just he was so delighted that you had come up with that that way of expressing his music, right? Oh, you know what made it even so much better, Phil, was this. I had I've been very blessed to have all the living doors on my show. And he and Rayman Zarek had a very big falling out. And if you catch the very beginning of that quote, you'll see that I quote Ray Manzarek. It was Ray Manzarek that told me what the most important thing was, was for him to hit the chakras. So when I tell John that what Ray said, it was the most important thing to hit the chakras, not only did it make him feel so beautiful that I caught that, because that's what they always talked about, but he later on went up and they made up before Ray Manzarek died. Really? Yeah, and I'm still in touch with John. So you really are about bringing people together. I do my best. <laughs> Literally. And Cal Ripken, the Hall of Famer, I believe oh, played more consecutive games than anyone. anybody in history. I've had a number of great athletes. Athletes are people that are really different from us. You meet Cal Ripken, you can't believe, first of all, how big and strong. It's not, a, you, you, he's just a baseball player, you mm -hmm, think. Mm -hmm. No, these guys are, I had Dave Winfield on, a Hall of Famer. Oh, he's I've had, massive. I've oh, seen I've had uh, Rafa Johnson, you name it. These guys are different than we are. They are built differently. And it's, um, it's amazing when you see them in person up close like that, you go, geez, you just think he's a shortstop in baseball on TV. But they're impressive. They really are. They're built just... What about their minds? What is it that you like in terms of talking to them? I think I love in all athletes that they must, in order to succeed, let go very quickly of every failure they have. 
They have to, once you swing that, I mean, Babe Ruth, we all have to remember how great he was. Well, he struck out more times than he hit home runs. Right. And I love that about any athlete is their ability to, after messing up, get right back in that batter's box, get right back on that football field, no matter what it is, and make believe that didn't happen it's, and just go on. It's a good lesson in life. Gretzky says you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And those people who are successful, you're absolutely right. Sometimes they're taking more shots than anybody else. Oh, totally. In and, fact, remember, to make it into the Hall of Fame, you're going to miss yeah. six out of the th 10 pitches. Yeah. You're going to still bat 300. So you're going to miss six times to only hit three times. Or better yet, you're going to miss seven times to only hit three times, and you'll make it into the Hall of Fame. Great golfers are the same way. If they got caught up on that putt, they get the yips. And only those that can say, forget it, let's go to the next one, those are the ones that uh, really reach the peak. I'm sure you found this in your guesses, like this thread with how successful people view failure. Some people talk a lot about failure as a negative thing, but if you speak to really successful people, they seem to talk about failure as a necessary step to success um, and trying things, giving it a go, right? And that holds a lot of people back, right? But that they won't give things a go. Yep. And I, in fact, I, in the book I'm writing, I literally make this statement. I am, I am the Van Gogh of mistakes and the Picasso of failures. I'm an artist at it. I make way more mistakes yeah. than I do correct things. And I, by the way, whoever tells you that they don't make the same mistake twice, know that they're a liar. Because the truth is we as human beings always make the same type of mistakes all the time. You've said that we, we, we can practice certain behaviors and you're really a big proponent of talking about this idea of practicing thing, something for 10,000 hours. So we do tend to repeat the same sorts of things, right? Success and failure. Exactly. My, my, the things that always gets me in trouble will always get me in trouble. The things that will make me successful will always, it's, it's very funny. It's just, I can see the pattern. I can't always implement it. Yeah. That's what I find the hardest thing for me and for anyone else to do is we can have this knowledge and turning it though into that wisdom so that we can actually act upon it that is still very difficult to do. And I always want to uh, share with my audience, and I'd love to share it with yours too, is that when that happens, the most important thing you must be is kinder to yourself. That if you can't do that, then you can't live with the failures and you can't live with the mistakes. You have to be kinder to yourself. You can take responsibility so that you can correct it, but you can't blame yourself. So how would somebody practice that, being kinder to yourself? Because we all, a lot of people will sometimes beat up on themselves, like they're their, they're their harsh, harshest critic, right? So how do you be kinder to yourself? I think, again, it's, it's almost something that you can't necessarily do. It's something that you quest to do. Right. It's sort of like, as we say in our, in our uh, Declaration of Independence, it's the pursuit of, of happiness. happiness. So that's what this really is. It's a pursuit. It's a quest. I don't believe you ever really get there. Right. But what you want to do, and what I always tell everyone is, all I want to do is take those times I feel bad mm -hmm. and make them this way, and then the times I feel good, expand them. So it's contracting the negative and opening up the positive, but 
I don't believe you can get rid of it. I think it's something you just keep doing. Oftentimes, uh, through the uncertainty, that questioning, uh, that questioning, the discovery of uncertainty, that really uh, is how we really find out what we are all about, what our nation is about, what our universe is all about. Yeah, uh, it's the, again the questioning. It's that quest again. It's no matter what it is, you can't count on that certainty. <laughs> no right. matter what, it doesn't exist. Anyone who tells you they're certain, they're wrong. All of the the greats are seeking certainty. Yes, yep. they're seeking that but it's never attainable. That's what makes it so interesting. It's never really attainable. What's attainable is your, as John Wooden, the great coach who said on my show and says this throughout the world, I mean, he's known for this, it's not just on my show, mm -hmm. but you know, the, the quest is that you be, and I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, that you become the best that you can possibly be. Mm -hmm. And that's, the most important measure of success, that you feel that you've really did the best that you possibly can do. And even that I have trouble with. But nonetheless, that's the, what I go for. You really love the idea of being able to surprise your guests. It's something you really thrive off, right? And, and Ron Howard said that too about your observation where you noticed a certain look in a, in a take with, yes. with Nixon. Yes. Right? There was, this, there was this moment where the camera was in close and you noticed a subtle movement in the face and you pointed that out. And what did Ron say to you? His same exact thing. He said, no one ever pointed anything out like that. How did you know that is exactly what we were going for. I don't remember the exact words, but it was something And, and explain what you observed. What, what was it that what you saw? What it was, was just, you can see in Nixon's eyes that there was a sort of, I guess, an almost plea for empathy. He almost wanted, you can tell how much he really wanted to be loved, mm -hmm. but just couldn't be a lovable guy. And that's what Ron claims that he and his writer were trying to capture. A lot of people don't understand what it's like to be an interviewer, or in your case, where you're not asking questions, but to create a conversation and the complexities of that. You're dealing with different personalities, different energy levels, different subjects. You've yes. got to be listening to the person talking at the same time as be processing everything that's being said and thinking about how that's going to thread out as a story. Yes. It's a it, lot of work. No, you know something? That for me, Again, I don't want to belittle it because it's something that comes easy to me. Mm -hmm. That's a lot to do with the preparation again, yes, right? Because you totally. you know you know what you've got to go after. You know what you've got to yes got to try to get out of it. Um, I I love what you say about fear. You say our primal instinct is fear. If we didn't possess this, we wouldn't um, what we've been provided with um, that we just wouldn't survive. You know, the, the reason that we've survived in, in the world is because of fear. And you're saying, don't worry about fear in your life. Embrace it. Yeah. Face up to it. That's all you can do. You can never get rid of it. I tried, uh, I'll tell you, my first realization of this was I was always afraid. I was a New York City boy, and I was always afraid Which, of... Was it Brooklyn? I was Queens. Oh, Queens. Queens. Okay. Uh, I was always afraid of getting beaten up kind of a thing because in New York City, it's pretty but tough. But you look like a kind Th of a strong guy. Thank you, and I always did. Yeah. Always look, but nonetheless, that was my biggest fear. And I had to get rid of it. I had to get rid of that fear. I could not stand that fear. And I literally realized I knew what to do. 
I, I loved football, mm-hmm. and I always knew that those big football linemen, they can't possibly be afraid. No. Of course, right? They're so strong. You're at least lining a, up against you're another exa- big guy. And you're just going to hit each other forever. So I made a decision that I was going to play football no matter what, mm-hmm. and I did. And I stuck it out for the full four years in high school. First, I wanted to quit. It was unbearable, but I stuck it out, and I got rid of that fear. But what I found out was the minute I did, another one seeped right in. And what was so, that fear? A fear of life, a oh, fear of sure. everything you can't imagine. Once I only thought I had that one little fear and if I got rid of that, I'd be fearless. And then I realized you cannot be fearless. You're gonna always have something that's going to gnaw at you, make you, and I go, again, that's why we quest for it. Yeah. We, and what I like to use is the word fear less right that i believe we can do we can fear less less, but but we we can't can't live without fear we can't live without fear and and do you feel it's it's important i mean i have a in in my book i have a chapter called face your fear so i have this belief that that it's important to just as you did identify your fear and then go after it head on just as you did so i was stuck in a cave once scuba diving um uh, sorry, in a shipwreck. And I deliberately went into an underwater cave to feel that fear again, to, to, to face it and to feel claustrophobic again because I wanted to let fear know that I was in control of it and it wasn't in control of me. And that's why I, to this day, will go to the gym because I still need to keep that strength up so that I know that I'm still not going to be afraid. And I joke with my wife, I, where, where I work, there's actually a school for designing art yeah. above me and the they're the most kindest gentlest littlest kids but if i miss too many workouts i'm afraid to walk across the schoolyard just like i was as a kid wow so i have to keep it keep it going i didn't think i'd be getting gym advice from you from but well you know it's when i lose 50 pounds then you'll take it seriously but <laughs> right that's the part that i don't do i have yet to figure that part no, out i can see you got How the to, build i mean you yeah got the, i got the big build, shoulders but i've also got the if we, when that side camera goes around everyone's going to see the other part of nah, me you, you look schvelt the camera makes you look nice and skinny <laughs> oh good it's that's a skinny right. lens right there i got him to put it on <laughs> thank you so much i appreciate they that, say a though. good interviewer is a is a is a curious person, is a, is a curious George. You say, um, question everything. Uh, you said, what if the real essence of faking something is not make-believe, but something we can actually do temporarily to fix the situation? In fact, even those who have achieved the greatest of success, however we define success, had to, had to do something called jerry-rigging Along the, I love that word, by the way, jerry-rigging, I, or is, those words, jerry-rigging. It is my favorite word. It is one, again, there are a few things I do well. I told you I fail well, yes. I make mistakes well, and I jerry-rig extremely well. You give me a hammer, and I can fix anything with it. Uh, you give me a piece of duct tape and Velcro, I could build a house. So I'm not MacGyver, don't get me wrong. I can't get us out of a jam like you could if we were in that cave or the capsized boat. But if I have to do something around the house and I find a piece of wood, I'll jam it into something, I'll hit it with a hammer, I'll take duct tape, put it over it. You just walk into my, you walk into my home and you will see it is a duct tape home. I never bother calling the repairman. I even have tiles. A duct taped home? Duct How does your tape. wife feel about the fact that it's duct taped? By tape the way, home? this is how great of a wife I have. Uh-huh. She's 
amazed by it. I'll give you a perfect example. This is the thing that I, I think blows you, her mind. I think, I think somehow you have done some kind of voodoo on her to make oh, it whatever think that I, duct whatever tape is I the magic. To do. But I'll tell you this. We have a, a brown and yellow tiles originally from the 1948 little Van Nuys ranch house we have still not in there. And of course, they're all corroded and they're all falling out. You don't have a duct tape floor, do you? Not quite, but you'll hear what I did. I bought yellow and brown duct tape. No, you rather did I did, and I'll show it to you in my house. I'm so proud of this. And rather than buy the tiles, I put the duct tape so it was the yellow where the yellow tile was and the brown, and then I cut it beautifully. And, it's, and when my wife saw it, she goes, oh, how did you do that? She was so impressed. Most women would say, get me the granite top, honey, and forget about it. But no, my wife was just in love with the fact that I figured out how to duct tape tile and make it look at least presentable. And, you know, people walk in and they go, is that duct tape? I go, yes, it is, you know? And so you I, weren't kidding. Your home oh, is a duct oh, tape. Every home? piece of my couch, every, my car. What do you mean I have your duct, couch? I'll tell you right now, we go outside, you will see duct tape on my car in three places. Where? The mirror, when I hit the garage door backing out, I put it back together with oh, duct tape. Okay. I have, you know how they have the little button in your uh, gas when you want to yeah. open up? My thing broke, so I duct taped the lock so you couldn't then lock the thing, but then I had to keep the thing closed, so I bought white duct tape the color of my car, and I shut the... You see, you don't have to worry about things. You have money. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's different when you work for, you know, CBS. You know what I'm telling what you? What do you say? No, listen. <laughs> duct tape is my friend. Look, there's a piece of duct tape on the end of this microphone you know, right here. I love duct tape too. I'm just saying. I, I, I think if I duct tape my house, my wife might say something. Do you love this new technology that we have now? I mean, you think of when you were 24 years old in Alaska going on air that night to do the sports and what's happened. Yeah. You know, with technology and what we can do now and that your material can live in another form of media. I really, I am so pro techno. I'm pro future and pro technology. Mm -hmm. I do not have the apocalyptic mind that this right. is all going to hell in a handbasket. I've never seen society do anything over, except improve over the long run. Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean we don't take dips? Yeah, we had the middle ages and the dark ages and we had... Not so long ago, we had fascism almost running through the world. So I'm not saying we don't have ups and downs as society, but if you look at us as a whole, it is evolutionary. We are moving forward. And therefore, even though I wish I had a better handle on some of the technology, I know every time I use my smartphone, I just complain and kvetch about it. It's, and finally, my, my- Did my, you say kvetch? I did. Yeah. Finally, my son's girlfriend, I was yelling at the phone and I said, I thought these are supposed to be smartphones. And my son's girlfriend says, they are, they're smart for a phone. And I thought, that's the answer. They're smart for a phone, but that's all they are, <laughs> smart for a phone. I can't, I still have trouble. Texting to me is one of the things I don't really get. Why don't you pick up the phone and make the call? It's so much easier than trying to fit the, my fingers on those little buttons. It just call the guy. You said about uh, communication. I don't have the answers, but I believe through discussion that we can solve any issue, which is great. I mean, this is what you do for a living. You're a, you're a communicator, right? Right. And right now we need some communication because we don't seem to be communicating in this country. Well, that is, I, I want to say something about that, by the way because 
I think this great divide yes. I, is almost, I wrote this in fact in one of my blog posts, is almost a meme. It's not really real, it's something that goes around. When you really, and, and tell me if, if you haven't experienced this, so many people, whether they're in the blue states or the red states, they all truly do care mm -hmm. about the same stuff. I agree. They want good health. They want they a healthy want yes. family. They want you know to be able to earn a good living. They everyone wants the same thing. It's this sort of political group right now, and a lot of the media group that seems to be f only focusing on this divide. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a divide amongst them, but not so much amongst. The, the regular people. people. Now, there are some people, I heard a great story where someone said, you know, it used to be, you know, racially, you never wanted to marry out of your race, you know, and now obviously that's like criminal. I mean, who doesn't care? There is no such thing as race. It doesn't right. matter who you marry. But now if someone said, you don't want to marry out of your party politically, and I believe that there are some people no, I, that I totally still believe think it. that way, you know, but I still say that the mass of people, the vast mass of people are really on the same plane. Mm -hmm. And it's, we're just being, I don't say we're being, I don't believe it's like a conspiracy or anything like that. It's just the way it is. And I do think we're gonna get over it. It's like drilling in on the nuance of what's different, right? So yeah. focusing on what's wrong instead of what's right. That's what it is. And, and uh, we just keep hammering the same points over and over again. And I'm more interested in, listening to people who don't think the way I do than I am about listening to people who do think like I am. But what's happening is everybody is going and sitting on the news channel that's, that's, that's playing their music, that's right. right? Like they want to hear what they want to hear and they don't want to hear the other side of it. Isn't it the coolest thing though when, as a communicator, when you can find common ground with people? Meaning you walk into sometimes a quite a, a, a caustic situation, a challenging situation where maybe people are like um, 12 Angry Men. You remember that wonderful oh, yes. film, right? Where there's one juror who who, yep. who thinks that this person is innocent and he's got a room full of people who will think he's guilty. And then slowly over the afternoon, that hot afternoon in New York, he That's talks right. them around, right? And and you, you want to be that person, right? As As interviewers, that's kind of what our job is, right? Is to, is to connect with that person on their level. I cannot believe you're saying this. That's all I've been thinking about for the last few days. It's not something that I originally had in mind when I was getting into this. Right. It's something that grew, but it's exactly, you took the words, talk about now, I feel like my guest now on my show, you took the words you're right not a, you're, okay. out of my mouth. You really did. Um. I just... If I, don't you, you feel that way. You yeah. literally say, come on guys and gals, just listen for one minute and mm -hmm. it will be, so, I, I swear it almost seems too simple to me that it's not happening. Right, you know, there's a, a quote that I got from my father-in-law, which was, uh, you can't receive when you're transmitting. And there's a lot of transmitting going on right now. And that's not communication, right? Communication is listening Yes. and digesting and then being able to find that connection with the other side and say okay we disagree on that but what can we agree on and that to me is what is not happening 
Do me a favor, say that quote again. I just love it. You you cannot receive when you're transmitting. My wife says I say it too much, but <laughs> okay. I, I believe in it so much. I do too. And it becomes part of the culture yeah. because it truly explains what we're talking about is mm. that quest is how do you quest? Well, you keep working. You yeah. keep working and hopefully you'll get lucky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the thing that so surprises me is we're talking about really intelligent people who have not got the capacity, it seems, to be able to find, I tell you, traveling around the world as a host, you walk into such a variety of situations. Like one minute you're in the Amazon, I was in the Amazon recently in a place called Manaus, and you go upriver and you stop off and you meet a chief and you don't speak their language. And it's a lot of that gesturing, it's gesturing and looks and the way that you are with that person will dictate how they react to you. and vice versa, right? And you're trying to find common ground. You have to assimilate, right? And we seem to have lost the ability to connect with how that other person is feeling and to connect with how that, what, what is going through that person's mind and what is important to them. We just sort of have our agenda and we just sort of waltz in there with a, like a bulldozer. Now Doesn't I, work. Now I feel like going on the other side. I want to pry into that a little bit more because are you, you going to ask me a question? No, I'm not. Are you going to throw gonna out a, something for yeah, a point of discussion? I am going to throw out. Is a this point where of it turns? How many minutes has it been? <laughs> I knew it would happen. <laughs> okay, you knew it would. So that ability that you have to do that was what fascinated me when I read more about you. That you can go into the unknown, literally, and not only explore it, but make it feel known to right. all of the viewers. Whenever I watch you, whenever I see you, that's the part that turns me on so much. You go into the unknown and you take us with you, but you never make us feel like we're just viewing. Mm. You make us feel that we are part of your journey. Well, that's and my parents. So I watch them at a very early age converse with prime ministers, you know, when we lived in Antigua. And then my dad would be talking to a farmer. He'd stop on the side of the road to talk to some uh, lo a local farmer, you know, about he's having some trouble with his aubergine and maybe there was some bugs or something. And my dad would say, well, have you tried this or have you tried that? And my parents had this ability to just assimilate, if that's the right word, to, to connect with that person at their level. And so it was a trick I got from them. And that's where I feel it's a skill that comes from traveling. It comes from mixing with people who don't think like you do, who maybe don't have, don't have the same, you know, ethnic background. That's so important. And the more you do it to your point, the more you practice it, the better you get at it. And sometimes when you stay in that, in your own little cocoon, in your own little bubble, you find it very difficult to accept that some people don't like the same opposite you know they don't like the opposite sex or maybe they're you know they're they're black or they're white you know it's it's that part that i find so fascinating in human nature and the ability that people have to do that and that's what i found fascinating about you your ability to see that and bring that out i'm not a traveler per se i travel in my mind a lot places where i shouldn't even go but uh well but, I mean, if uh, you stop duct, duct taping your floor <laughs> you, you, you might have a bit more time to get out <laughs> i mean how many hours seriously cutting the 
Oh. The duct tape. Oh, and, and, but not only that, you know, duct tape, you have to change it every once in a while, too, because it does you, get... Really? Oh, yeah, well, the yellow the water, wears out. Well, yeah, the water gets underneath it because it's supposed to be a sink. So. Oh. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to add um, that you feel we haven't talked about that you want people to know about you? I mean, tell us one more time again, Between the Lines. Uh, oh, it's Between the, the Lines. We're on... PBS, I think the best way if I can, I, and I love this, if anyone's listening to this and they simply want to email me, mm -hmm. it's at Barry, my name, B-A-R-R-Y, at barrykibrick.com. You're would, that accessible? I'm that accessible. I Everyone says you answer literally every, I answer every email. I broadcast it on television. I will say, talk about duct tape, that doesn't take up time, but my emails, it takes me a good two to really? three hours to knock out. What's the thing you love to hear from your viewers and your followers? What's the thing that really gives you, you know, makes you oh, feel warm in your heart? I know exactly what it is. When they get and tell me what it is I'm doing, yes. and they're right. Right. And when I hear them... And that, you're always right. No, no, no. No, no, I no meant, I'm kidding. I mean, I, when, when they feel it, yes. then I know that I'm doing yeah. the right thing. And that, to me, uh, that's... Receiving those emails... In fact, I'm always... And even when I meet people in person, I, I, I guess because I've never had the fame like a Brad Pitt or someone like that, but I can't imagine how anyone could get tired of that. Mm. I don't know how, you know, come up and tell me you love me. Come up and tell me you like what I do. Come up and tell. I never get tired of it. So. Does your wife do that? Always. That's really? why I keep her. And you, I, <laughs> She's good at boosting your ego? My wife cannot lie. Mm. She cannot. She cannot. And... The first thing, and I don't know if this is from my mother or my New York upbringing, the first thing always that comes to my mind is use a lie first and then figure out where to go. I just, you know, it's just easier just to try. But my wife never lies, can't lie. In fact, even if she tries to make me feel better when she's, she can't, I could just see it in her face. So, really? Yeah, so she keeps me completely honest. So a couple of last questions. These are questions. Um, You're allowed to ask yeah. me questions. Oh, that's right. That's I don't right. want you to steal I, my shtick. I didn't know whether I had to play I, by I your rules. I don't want you to steal my shtick. You know, uh, you know I, I mean? thought maybe I might ask you a question, and since it's the first time you've been asked a question, you might go, Phil, I don't answer questions. I'll be like, uh, I don't know what to do now. I'm used to asking questions. <laughs> Um, okay, so you're going to take a car trip and you're going to leave here. You're going to leave the West Coast. You're going to drive to New York, say, right? And you're going to be in the car for 10 days and you can take anybody in the car, living or dead, someone you may know, you might not know. Who would you take with you? It's my wife. Okay. And there's a distant seconds only. Okay, so give us the distant seconds. I mean, somebody maybe to entertain your wife, you know. <laughs> Please, it better be me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. I mean, <laughs> maybe, uh, who's driving, by the way? Uh, I would drive. You would drive, yeah. yeah. You said living or dead, right? Yeah, so, any, any time, any period. I'll, I'll tell you, one of the, one of the living people, I'll, I'll tell you, is Robert Greene, who's been on my show for every book he's written, including his most famous uh, the 48 Laws of Power. Okay. Uh, he is just someone who always captures my attention and is so wise and could converse. 
Um, has I, he been in as a guest a few times? Oh, when, always. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, every, he's been a every guest. book. In fact, he's been the, the guest most on, most frequent, on my yep. show. The second guest most frequently on my show is a fellow named Leonard Mladenov, who's a physicist who wrote The Grand Design with Stephen Hawking mm. and A Brief A History in Time with Stephen Hawking. And he too, because I love to, I would love to discuss human nature, which is Robert Greene's newest book. And I would love to discuss physics and the uh, outer reaches of things. And the two people that aren't with us that had a very special thing about them is a fellow named John O'Donoghue, mm -hmm. who was a former priest and uh, became a uh, philosopher and a poet. And Richie Havens, when you met them, and I, I don't want to sound spooky religious out, out there, but there was some sort of halo. I don't know what you want to call aura. it. Aura. Aura is beautiful. There was an aura over Richie Havens and this John O'Donoghue that just, you know, you, you met them and you just felt you were enlightened. In the, enlightened. You, were in the, you were in the presence of a different kind of being. Mm. So I think they would be interesting to take along and Richie could play the guitar and entertain as well so I'm gonna to have to adjust the question because I said three people you named five so oh. <laughs> by the way as, my, figuring, as someone once told me I don't just gild the lily I gild the gilded oh, lily so it's, it's we're gonna have right. to take a suburban I think we're gonna, you're gonna have to switch out your duct taped car and, and get a seven seater because otherwise you're coming outside and you're going to see the duct tape by the way so i'm going to show you oh, once like, we get no, out I'm, listen i'm intrigued uh, i'll I'm, get pictures of it and i'll send it also need so. a bigger car okay so listen in order to understand what's important to you what would you do with your last day on earth if you knew tomorrow was your last day on earth and you had the ability to design your final day on earth what would you do with it i would sit in my backyard light up a big cigar have a wonderful martini, mm -hmm. and that's what I do every day. Shake so, and stirred? Shake, uh, I never shake, only stir. Only stir. Your only wife is stir. there, I presume? Always. Yes. And that's the day. Uh, yeah, your sons are hanging yes, out with you? definitely. And I'll even let my grandkids You see how me. I'm designing your... your yeah, I, yeah, I'm I designing the whole thing. I'm just adding a few more. I, I, well, you know, do you mind if I pop over? Or? No, you're welcome as well, <laughs> Phil. Always, and to see Phil, the duct tape floor. You're, you're going to be welcome in my life whenever you want. You have an idea and you don't even have anything but that idea. You call me up, you come on my show. You know, I've got a great idea just for my wife's birthday, which is coming up soon. I get you to come over. I buy some rolls of duct tape and you do the, our kitchen floor. Designed Consider by you. Consider it done. Consider, it, Consider done. it done. We'll pick colors and we'll do it. <laughs> Thank I you. I love you, Phil. Thank you very much, buddy. Thank you. All right. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To see more great interviews, go to philcogan.com and subscribe to Bucket with Phil Kogan wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider rating and reviewing us. And follow Bucket, that's Bucket with an I-T, on Instagram and Facebook. Also, follow me on Twitter, at Phil Kogan. See you soon.